or turn to read from God's Word now. Philippians chapter 2, we'll read verses 12 to 30. So continuing the series in Philippians chapter 2, I'll read from verses 12 to 30. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not also as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because he heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honour such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Father, as we turn to your word, we pray you would give us wisdom, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive by your Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name, Amen. I don't know if this is something you've experienced. I think most of us probably do. But as we get older... Like it or not, we start to morph into our parents, don't we? All those things that we used to make fun of our parents for doing, mock them for doing, we find ourselves suddenly doing. This is something I see in myself all the time. I used to think it was ridiculous that my mother would insist on cleaning the whole house top to bottom before we went on holiday. But what's the point? We're not going to be here. And now I find myself before a long trip getting the marigolds out and scrubbing the kitchen, saying, well, you can't come back to a dirty house. You just can't come back to a dirty house. And I used to think it was really overly cautious that my dad would insist on getting to the airport hours, hours and hours before we needed to take off, way before it was necessary. I thought, just being overly cautious, we don't need to do that. Whereas now, I find myself preparing for a trip and rushing Judy and Billy into the car and saying, you just don't know what traffic's going to be like. You do know what traffic's going to be like. It's going to be fine, but I just find myself becoming my dad. I find myself becoming my mum. And that's because whether we like it or not, we learn so much from our parents, not just from what they tell us, but also from spending our whole lives looking at their example. And that's what we come to 
in the letter to the Philippians this morning. We come to these two great examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus, and then also the example of Paul himself. Now we know that this is a letter that, as we've seen, is all about partnership in the gospel. And one thing that means is that when Paul gives big commands, like the big command we saw last week to live lives worthy of the gospel, like the one we just read this morning to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he doesn't just throw out those commands and let the Philippians work out what he means. No, having partners in the gospel means having good examples to follow. Now, we saw last week that the chief example the Philippians are to look to and imitate is the Lord Jesus himself in his humility and commitment to serving and loving. But this morning, as Paul expands on everything we've just been learning about Jesus, he doesn't just instruct, he also draws the Philippians' attention and ours towards these two great examples of how they should conduct themselves in the Christian life. So we find this afternoon a really instructive passage for us, one which helps us to reflect on whose example we ourselves are following and also how we can be better at following godly examples. So we'll look at these verses under two headings because we see in these verses one big exhortation and three good examples. So it's one big exhortation and three good examples. So we see the one big exhortation laid out for us there in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not so now, not only is my presence, but much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This uh, is one of those verses which used to confuse me a bit because I naturally assumed that work out meant work it out, as if the Philippians had to puzzle out for themselves what it meant to be saved. It doesn't actually mean that. It means being active. The, the Greek term is one of hard striving. It's not work out a puzzle out, it's work out as in work it out, outwork it in how you live. It's a call to be active in living out the salvation that Christ has won for them. I mentioned just before that similar command in chapter 1, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's the same kind of thing here. Because, Philippians, you know Jesus died, because you know he rose and is coming again to reign, therefore, be active in maintaining your obedience to him. Be active in living as those who really have been saved, even as you look to Jesus with reverence and with awe. So right away, we already have another big challenge facing us in this passage. We come back once again to one of the big questions that we saw at the start of Philippians, one we've reflected on a few times now. Am I allowing a love for the Lord Jesus to govern how I live each and every day? Or to slightly reframe that question to make it more similar to how Paul puts it here, is knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done for me spurring me on to actively pursue, to actively work out more and more obedience to him to such an extent that I am more clearly marked out as one who has been saved. I think that Christian obedience is something we can all easily find ourselves stagnating in from time to time. I remember a while ago I got quite grossed out. Uh, I found out that the, the FDA, which is the group in America which is in charge of food laws and things like that, Apparently, they allow an acceptable level of contaminant to get into the food supply. 
So for apple juice, it doesn't have to be completely pure. They're allowed to have like a certain amount of insect bits that get into the supply for it to still be safe for human consumption. Now, I haven't yet had the courage to check if that's the same in the UK. I don't want to know. I'd rather just drink my apple juice with peace of mind. But it's a, it's a grisly thought that there's apparently an acceptable level of contamination that can get into food and still be considered safe. But grisly a thought as that is, it, it is something like how we can treat our sin battle, if we're being honest. We can act as if there's an acceptable level of sin an acceptable level of disobedience that we're content to have in our lives. Anything above that line, we start to feel a bit guilty. But because it's nothing dramatic, it's nothing public, it's not doing anyone any harm, we're happy to just coast along in certain areas of disobedience. There's an acceptable level of losing our temper with our children. There's an acceptable level of letting our thoughts wander off in lust. There's an acceptable level of serving other Christians, not wanting to do too much more, not wanting to inconvenience ourselves, just ticking along at a nice acceptable level of obedience. We are sinful creatures. That's not something we can fix. Of course, we'll never reach the level of perfection through our own efforts. But this verse does ask us to consider how we can be active in trying to grow in obedience to Christ. For the Philippians, Paul's not content for them to get this buzz of excitement while he's in town preaching, to get this kind of Christian summer camp high where they really want to obey and then as soon as his preaching stops, they fizzle out and go back to the way they were. He wants them to look even more now that he's away to the Lord Jesus and to grow in their living for him. And I'll take it, it's the same for us. How can we, how can we make the whole of the Christian life one of growing and active obedience? Well, once again, we find that we're not alone in this work. One of the commentators helpfully draws out that this command comes with the assurance of what God has done He describes the salvation that's being worked out as already something that God has given us. So praise God. Salvation is something he has given us and it's also a work that he is doing in us. In verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here's the assurance and the motivation that the Philippians need to follow Paul's command. They're not going it alone. It's God himself who is at work in them. He is conforming their wills to desire more and more obedience to him. And he is empowering their work to be effective like his work. You might have heard it said that in the Christian life, the way in is the way on. That's fantastically true for the Philippians. God, who began a good work in them, we saw it in chapter 1, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And God, who began his good work by bringing them to saving knowledge of Jesus, is at work in them still until that day when he comes again to help them to work out that salvation and to grow and grow and grow in obedience. And I think that that is pretty transformative of our understanding of these verses. 
pretty transformative of our understanding of what obedience means. We can do away with these notions of having to make lots and lots of effort to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and just be better, contorting ourselves into greater appearances of godliness. No, I take it we should take great comfort here, take great assurance that God began a good work in us and is at work in us still. That God is at work in us because it is, it is his good pleasure that his people should grow in obedience to him. So what Paul is asking of the Philippians here, what's being asked of all of us today, is that we work with God rather than against him. We take assurance that God really does take pleasure in answering our prayers for help to grow. We strive to keep praying and looking to him to help us to grow in being active in our obedience. But notice as well that their obedience here is not just a a general catch-all term. There's also this really specific outbox for them, which Paul goes on to in verses 14 to 16. We read verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We've already thought a bit about the need for selfless unity in Philippi and it's just driven home again for us here. The grumbling and disputing or questioning that Paul mentions. It's not that the Philippians should never ever have a bit of a moan or a whinge, although if you're anything like me, you probably could do with an encouragement to do less moaning and whinging. But it's not just that. There there are more loaded biblical terms here, grumbling or disputing or questioning. These are words which actually hark back to the time of the Exodus, when God had brought Israel out of Egypt And yet they find themselves grumbling in the wilderness, questioning in the wilderness. Actually saying that life was better under slavery to Pharaoh than it was following God in the here and now. And so the caution here is one against dissatisfaction in the Christian life. And allowing that dissatisfaction to rise to a less harmonious relationship with fellow believers. That's one thing that should really mark them out from the world around them. A world which Paul says is crooked and twisted. A world which is marked by selfishness and everyone looking out for number one. So against that dark backdrop, that Christians have a real opportunity to shine, to hold out the light of the gospel to people who need to see it as they hold fast to it themselves, and as they allow this knowledge of what Jesus has done for them to spur them on in deeper and growing love for one another. And there, once again, we see the day of Christ in the midst of all this. That's the horizon that Paul is always looking towards in this letter. That's one that they're to look to as well. That's the day in which he'll be so glad he gave them this encouragement because he'll see them presented blameless before Jesus. The day of Jesus coming again is a day on which Paul will see that his own ministry among the Philippians was totally worthwhile. And it's also the day in which they will see the true value in having striven to grow in their Christian character and in their love for one another. 
It might be worth saying that sometimes as we look at the world around us, it doesn't seem all that bad. Twisted and crooked are, are quite strong terms. And maybe it doesn't always feel like the world around us is twisted and crooked. A lot of people are actually quite nice. We'll see lots of examples in our own communities of unbelieving people who really go out of their way to be kind and to help their neighbours. It's all part of God's common grace and something we can give thanks for. And yet I think that just puts the burden even more on us to make sure that we are growing in obedience in this area. That we really are marked out for a growing and deepening love for one another, fueled by our love for the Lord Jesus. Such that even the very best of the world can look at us and not think that we're anything particularly special, but at least look at us and marvel at the Lord who we must love, in in whose name we try to love one another. The world around should always be able to look at the church and see it as a shining example of serving other people with selfless joy. Well, that's the one big exhortation. It's another big challenge. And now we move on to these three really good examples that Paul gives the Philippians and also instructs us with today. So first of all, they have the example of Paul himself. Before he gets to these other guys, we read him saying in verse 17, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Something we've seen a lot of in Philippians. Again, Paul himself is this really clear and encouraging example for them to follow. And in the context here, he's once again full of joy. Here he uses some more Old Testament imagery. This time the imagery of sacrifices and offerings brought to the temple. So he describes the faith of the Philippians as a sacrificial offering. Because unlike in Old Testament days, believers who have put their trust in Jesus don't need to take animals or grain to the temple to sacrifice and to try and invite God's pleasure that way. Rather, as those who have already been made right with God in Christ, they live the life of faith, the life of obedience. That's their life of sacrifice and offering pleasing to God. And that's what the Philippians are called to here. It's their life of faith which is the sacrificial offering that they bring before God. And then with that in mind Paul compares himself to a drink offering. It's slightly more unclear what the drink offering really did in the Old Testament days but usually it at least accompanied a larger sacrifice and was largely just symbolic of bringing the bigger offering to completion. It wasn't a necessary component, but it was a bit like a little top-up to really just round off the bigger sacrifice. That's fascinating because it means that what Paul is in effect saying is that if he has to pour out his very life in service of the Philippians, even if by doing that he's not really adding that much to what they're already doing, still something you can take great joy in. For Paul, if all of his exertions are going to help the Philippians in any small way to glorify God as he builds them up in their faith, he can rejoice in that, no matter how small a work it may seem like. And that's a pattern that they should follow too. Rejoicing 
in giving their very lives over in joyful service of one another to God's glory. It's the complete polar opposite of the grumbling and questioning they've just been warned against. I've been sharing with some of you the difference that Billy has made to our lives over the last seven weeks. It's amazing that when, well, just before you have a baby, I don't know if it's like this for the women, but certainly for my guy friends coming up to me and saying, oh, I bet you're not looking forward to changing all those nappies and all the sleepless nights and screaming. And I think eight weeks ago, I was pretty anxious about all of that stuff. But this amazing thing happens when you love somebody. Those things which really should feel like a chore suddenly become a privilege. They suddenly become this immense joy. When we look at Billy, it's not, I can't believe we have to look after him. It's, I can't believe we get to care for this little guy. That's what love does. Not, do I have to, but do I really get to? I don't know, maybe you can check in with me in a couple of years' time when he's going through the terrible twos and see if that love is lasting and if I still have an attitude. But that is the attitude that the Philippians ought to have for one another. The attitude that we should have towards one another. Not, do I really have to keep loving and serving my church family and growing in that love and service? But praise God that I get to. Praise God that he has placed me in this congregation in which I can serve and glorify him as I care for the needs of his people if it makes any tiny, tiny difference in the life of faith they're living. So that's Paul, and we'll see next week we come back to his example and they'll learn a lot more from him then in chapter 3. Then they also have these other two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. So first of all, there's Timothy, about whom Paul says in verse 20, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So here's Timothy, a model of being active in gospel partnership with Paul, serving with him in getting the gospel out there. There's two things that I find really interesting in the example of Timothy. I find it really interesting, first of all, that he's remarkable because in a world full of selfish people looking out for number one, Timothy is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. A genuine concern for the welfare of fellow believers really shouldn't be that much of a rarity, either in Paul's day or in ours. But that's the thing that Paul really commends Timothy for here. Genuine concern for the welfare of the Philippians. But then the other thing I find really interesting, it's connected to that, in verse 21, everyone's looking out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't draw the line between self-interest and your interest. It's self-interest versus the interests of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's a really good thing for us to take note of. Because we're not really sharing in Jesus' concerns if we're not concerned for Jesus' people. All that just adds another layer to what we've been saying all along. Remember, sharing in the mind of Christ, counting others more significant than ourselves. It's just restated here. 
The Lord Jesus is interested in the welfare of his people. And if we want to share in his mind, we will be too. It feels like Paul is laboring the point. Maybe it's because he knows that the church just really needs to keep hearing it. And it's just another way of saying what we keep saying over these last few weeks. That we must be growing in love for one another. And if we're in any doubt, we can ask ourselves that diagnostic question. Those people who I struggle to love, does Jesus struggle to love them? Those people who I don't care for much, does Jesus care for them? Is he interested in their spiritual welfare? And if I love him, why am I not? More deeply challenging questions and fuel for my prayers, I'm sure, and for yours as well. But that's what Timothy was all about. This fine example of being interested in the spiritual welfare of others. So what about Epaphroditus? Well, we find out about him, verse 26. He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And then a bit later, receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honour such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now Epaphroditus is a local boy. He's a Philippian. He maybe was somebody who Paul left to help lead the church after he had planted it back in the book of Acts in his absence. And in fact, it's probably Epaphroditus going to be with Paul, which has prompted him writing this letter in the first place. Epaphroditus was probably sent with a financial gift to carry to Paul from the Philippian church. And so he is the one who has brought this really encouraging report of life back in Philippi. That's prompted Paul to get out his pen and paper and to write to them. And he is commended here for having such a burden for the Philippian church that even his own brush with death is less important to him than their own well-being and peace. But he's also commended for being willing to put his very life on the line for the sake of gospel partnership. Paul and his ministry, they were totally reliant on the financial gifts of partner churches it was kind of a hand-to-mouth existence. If people didn't give, Paul couldn't do much. And so that's why when Epaphroditus gets ill on this journey to see Paul, rather than thinking, I'm feeling a bit unwell, I must turn back, or rather than thinking, I'll just give this money to somebody else and entrust him with the journey, no, he doesn't take a break. He doesn't get someone else to do the job. He doesn't go and check himself into the local hospital. He sees through the job. He thinks, Epaphroditus seems to think, even if I die because of this journey, I will die in ensuring that the gospel goes out through Paul's ministry for a bit longer. Something he's willing, literally, to die for. So for the Philippians and for us, Epaphroditus is this really vivid example of what Paul was saying last week. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't think that the example of Epaphroditus is commending complete recklessness to us in the Christian life. Like, we're not really serving God unless we're killing ourselves for it. There's a place for caution, and of course it is good and right to take care of ourselves. It's one of the ways we can sustain a longer life of ministry is making sure that we are not running ourselves into the ground in exhaustion. 
But we should remember the context here. Epaphras was faced with a situation where he could preserve his life or advance the gospel. And that's the decision that he was faced with. That's the, the thing it comes down to. What do you choose in that situation? Preserving myself or advancing the gospel? Epaphroditus chose the latter. And the Philippians themselves, they too will probably soon be facing situations just like that, where they must choose between their own health and well-being and even life or advancing the cause of the gospel. And here we see Paul commending a man, one of their own, who was willing to lay his life down so that more people could hear about Jesus. So it's a really pertinent example for them. And for us, I suppose the question is, am I willing to lay aside my comforts, my ease, and if it comes to it, even my life, if it advances the gospel? When the rubber hits the road, if I did have to lay my life down, knowing that it would help more people to hear about Jesus, would I do it? Again, it's another big challenge for us to reflect on this afternoon. As we move into application and towards a close, I think as well as seeing these men as really good examples for us to try and imitate, another interesting thing is that the big imperative that Paul draws out at the end of the section is honour such men. I take it that the such men is Epaphroditus and Timothy as a whole. That's the, the main thing that Paul draws this section to a close with. Honour such men. So that has to be where we start. We start by giving thanks for the example of men like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. But also giving thanks for the people who've carried on their example through the many ages of the church. So maybe we can all think of some of our own heroes of the faith who've given their lives in joyful service of God's people. Maybe some of the fathers of the church here in Scotland who were willing to put their lives on the line for the sake of an enduring gospel witness in this land centred on the grace of the Lord Jesus. We ought to give thanks for their example and their lives. But I will say, we don't have to be church history nerds to put these verses into practice, to honour such men. Because we can probably all think of people in our own Christian lives who have carried this torch. We can probably all think of modern day Timothys and Epaphroditus who in a small but very, very real way have given their lives in joyful service to see us progressing in the faith. So when I read of Timothy and Epaphroditus, I personally am prompted to give thanks for Dan McBride who was unafraid to challenge and to teach me as a young Christian who thought I knew it all. I'm prompted to give thanks for George Denshin, a student two years ahead of me at university, who was the first person to sit down with me and open the Bible together and to teach me some really key memory verses to bed in the core truths of the gospel. I'm prompted to give thanks for Henry Mullen and Dave Prosser, who led my small group Bible study for three years during my uni degree. A trainee lawyer and an A&E doctor with plenty of work and family demands on their time, and yet who consistently, patiently, and lovingly taught me the gospel. 
who laid aside their own comfort and ease just for the sake of seeing me grow more like Christ, even like could be quite unreceptive to their efforts. I give thanks for them. And I give thanks for my great auntie Jean, who, when she found out I was spending a year after uni volunteering with the Christian unions as a relay intern, faithfully prayed for me and gave towards my ministry and didn't let her worsening Parkinson's disease stop her from sending me a handwritten letter of encouragement every month just to let me know that she was behind me and praying for my growth. Those are just a few examples from my life and there are many, many more. I could spend our entire time together telling you of all the people that this passage prompts me to give thanks for. So I wonder, who is it for you? Who are the people who you can give thanks for, who you can think of, who looked out for your interests, who invested time and energy and care to see you grow in the faith? Let me ask you not to let this afternoon pass by before, in the quietness of your heart, giving thanks to God for the saints who've gone before us, who invested so much in us. Then as we do that, as we give thanks for people like that, the modern-day Timothys and Epaphroditus, who we all know, it's only right that we'll want to follow their example. If being more like Jesus can feel a slightly nebulous or intangible thing, don't really know what that means sometimes, well then honouring godly men and women who have cared for our spiritual well-being by following their example can feel like something more concrete. C.S. Lewis talks about how the truly humble person is someone who's more interested in you than in themselves. Not that they think less about themselves, but they think about themselves less. And when we meet truly humble people, we find that we want to be more like them. They're infectious in their quiet way. They just draw us to want to be a bit more like them. And I take it in a similar way, that when we find ourselves impacted by godly saints, we find ourselves slightly in awe of them and wanting to be that bit more like them. Now, inevitably, they would all rather do away with any praise directed at them. They would all say, I'm not that special, really. They would direct our attention towards the Lord Jesus. But as we think of them and their example, as we think of all those people who we're so thankful for, we could pray that God would draw our hearts to be more enamored with the Lord Jesus, whom they loved, whose example they followed, so that we imitate them as they imitate him. As we close this afternoon, who are the people who I can be a Timothy for, an Epaphroditus for? Who are the people I can be a Dave Prosser for? Who are the people I can be a great anti-Jean for? As we reflect on their example, an example of not having self-satisfaction, but working towards God's good pleasure and for the good of Christ's people, we long and pray that he would help us by his spirit to work out our salvation in this way, that he may be glorified and that his church may be built up. Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer as we stand to pray together. We close. Father, we thank you for the salvation you've won for us in Christ, and we pray that by your Spirit you would help us to work it out with fear and trembling, 
We thank you for the godly examples of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And we give you great thanks for all the men and women of the faith who we've known in our own life of faith, who have followed their example and invested so much time and care in us. And so we pray that as you draw us to give thanks everywhere, we see examples of people who have lived out this charge. We also long and pray that you would make us more like people who love you and have a deeper and deeper care for your saints. All these things we pray that the Lord Jesus may be glorified and in his name. Amen. Well, as we close, we'll sing again from Psalm 63 in the Scottish Psalter. You'll find that on page 295. Sing verses 1 to 5 of Psalm 63. Lord, thee my God, I'll early seek. My soul doth thirst for thee. My flesh longs in a dry parched land wherein no waters be. Psalm 63, verses 1 to 5 in the Scottish Psalter. who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with everything good that we may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.